everybody, and welcome to another installment of The Crush. I've been calling the show The Crush lately. I think I'm trying to sound cooler. I'm trying, I'm trying to attract a more millennial audience. Are you saying innovation is not cool? Innovation is cool. I'm saying I'm not cool. Uh. So, it's, you know. You got you to do something. But anyway, everybody, welcome to another installment of the show. Uh, in case you're tuning in for the first time ever, this show covers all things innovation, creativity, ideas, smart people doing smart things. And uh, that lovely voice you just heard is the voice of Christina Z. Holly. Hello. Um, the Z is not a middle initial. It is a nickname. That's right. Uh, explain that nickname. Yeah, my name, my first name, Christina, has a Z in it. Silent Z. Hungarian. So people call me Z. The Hungarian Silent Z. That's right. Um, Silent Z sounds like a like a assassin in a video game or something like that. Yeah. Um, why are you here? I don't know. Because <laughs> no. I love innovation. Exactly. Um, Z was a. Uh, you're, this is a. This is a second first. <laughs> um, you, uh, you are a, a guest on the show because uh, you've done so many amazing things. Um, Co-created TEDx, I'll say. Uh, I'll say that. Um, what else have you done? What? What do? You, what do you? Tell me some more. Oh gosh. Tell us some more. That. Yeah, I mean, everything from uh, uh, starting starting companies to launching new innovation centers at universities, creating the first TEDx. Um, now hosting podcast, The Art of Manufacturing, and also heading up I'm chief instigator of a new nonprofit initiative for Mayor Garcetti called Make It in LA. Chief instigator is yeah. that a real title? It is. What is, what is it? Wasn't a chief instigator do? Well, I think part of it is kind of mixing stuff up because people think that manufacturing is uh, kind of old, boring, over, and that's not that. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, manufacturing has been alive and well, and um, in fact, it's getting disrupted and it's growing. And um, LA is an amazing place to do it. And so, um, and part of it is just helping pull people together, create uh, more community. You know, in the same way that Hollywood and tech have these amazing entrepreneurial communities, um, manufacturing doesn't have that quite yet, but uh, we're working nice. on that. Uh, and you're also a podcaster? I am, yeah. So, uh, art of manufacturing. The art of manufacturing. Got it. Yeah. I'm so good. I'm such a good host. So good. <laughs> right, Patrick? I'm I'm going to go and get my coat. That was so intimidating. I'm pretty sure I've turned up in the wrong place. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. You're the man of the hour. Um, say hello, Pat. The voice you guys you guys just heard is Patrick Mulford. Say hello, Patrick. Hi, guys. Um, would love if you could give us a little bit of a hey, the 90 second version of who Patrick Mulford is, and then we'll talk um, some more. Okay, well, right now, um, this is like a game show. You know when you go on a game show and they say, who are you? And you have to define yourself by like one thing. And it's normally yes. your job and then something bizarre that happened in your life. And your <laughs> entire personality is defined by your job and that with like the time I accidentally got in the wrong car and drove off with a complete stranger. Or Is that a true um, story? Is that a real thing that happened to you? I don't know. If that happened to me, I I've can't gotten remember. in the wrong car and sat in the passenger seat and was like, hey, you want some of these chips? And then it was, it was totally not. I've invited to complete into. strangers to get in a car with my family before and not told them. That's happened. <laughs> that just sounds illegal somehow. <laughs> but that's a longer story. Um, I guess the, 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 that I've already used up a minute, but um, I'm the chief creative officer of a company called The Audience, which is based in West Hollywood. Um, we're one of the largest publishers of social content in the world. We've been around for about six years, and we were kind of a happy accident that came out of a wedding between entertainment and technology so a lot of the the initial backers of the audience were people that were kind of big movers and shape shakers in in um uh, in california people like ari Emanuel, the uh the co-founder of wme and sean parker of napster and facebook fame and uh, a guy called oliver luckett that, that um, came from disney and is a great innovator of tech so uh, we spent about three years publishing um quietly publishing on behalf of celebrities in hollywood and then slowly, uh, we started doing it for brands as well. Brands and record companies and entertainment properties started seeing what we were doing and how we were starting conversations that, that weaved entities into the fabric of, of popular culture and, and they got involved as well. So now most of what we do is, is working with brands and, and helping them tell authentic stories that have value in that ecosystem. Um, it sounds like you guys came along like total right place, right idea, right time, right? You say entertainment and technology, you know, what six years ago is probably like, the, I mean, that is the perfect gumbo 
to to launch something like that. I think so, and I think it was a happy experiment. I think everybody that was uh, involved um, realized there was huge potential, but didn't necessarily know that what that potential would be. And over time, we've slowly discovered what that potential is, and also how important social media is becoming to people, not just people's um, as as a as a pastime, but also um, important to their psyches as well. What is the thing that stayed the same over the course of the six years and a thing that's changed tremendously? Um, what's, what's changed tremendously? Well, the platforms are always evolving. So um, when we first started out, it was mostly about Google Plus and Facebook. And now you've got Snapchat and, and Instagram and, and you've got Periscope and uh, and, and Meerkat and 101 other platforms all competing for space. So this is a this is a rapidly evolving space. Um, who knows where we'll be in two years' time? Um, the thing that stayed the same, um, the audience has stayed the same. I mean, that sounds really kind of twee to say that because that's the name of the company. The co- I was going to say the company the co- or the actual audience. <laughs> the actual audience itself. The clues in the name. We've always re- represented them rather than our clients. Really, I mean, our clients want a seat at the table so we're there to represent the lives loves passions voice of that audience and help help bring those people to to the party um it's it's no longer i mean the thing with with social media is it's not a mass communication channel it's not somewhere where you pay a lot of money pick up a loudspeaker and you have license to to say whatever you want to as many people as you want Um, when you look at a social network it's nothing more than a complex colony of people connecting with each other. So um, the content is only as relevant and as valid as the value it brings to that ecosystem. So everybody has to bring value. And if a brand thinks it can just turn up and say, hey, this is who we are and this is what we're selling, um, they'll very rapidly find out that people aren't really interested. People people don't really care about brands and social. They only care about the values those brands represent and the value um, that that has for them as individuals. What are the biggest mistakes that they're doing that the not your clients, but the ones that are not the ones that uh, haven't quite seen? He helps right. their he helps their clients make the right right. Decision. So that's the thing. Like, who what what are the ones that are not your clients doing wrong? Um, I, I think the ones the ones that aren't necessarily doing it very well are the people that still see social media as an extension of their marketing campaign. So. Um, you'll have a brand and it's decided that this year it's all about this blue cheese and they have a strap line and the strap line is mmm blue cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what the strap line was. And uh, and they think that they can, you know, they, they, they do a TV ad and it's mmm blue cheese and um, they do billboards and mmm blue cheese. And then they come, they, they go on um, social media. What they were doing? Are you I, no, I, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I was I was oh in the airport God. the other day and they were selling that moon cheese stuff, which is like dried cheese. Mm. It's like cheese for spacemen. Have you tried that? No, my wife is into tub cheese right now, and I was like, or pub cheese. I thought it was tub, tub cheese. cheese. <laughs> yeah, well, she kept telling me on the phone. I was like, wait, like tub cheese? It sounds disgusting. And then I saw it in the refrigerator. I was like, oh, pub cheese, which still looks disgusting. It's just like a tiny bucket of cheese. You need to make a correction then, mm. because now I have an image tub of cheese. your wife sitting with a massive tub of cheese in <laughs> a spoon. She's so lonely. <laughs> exactly. Don't you feel bad? <laughs> now I do. Thank you, guys. Um, so, so you can't just. Um, just the, you can't just take that strap line and that advertising campaign and and spam people in social. Um, you can you can place ads and you can you can pay for media, but that isn't necessarily that effective. It's got to be an authentic reason for being there. Um, it's a little bit like the best example. I'm, I try everything in life can be um, explained with an analogy that involves James Bond for me anyway. <laughs> and um, you know when you see the James Bond film and the car is part of. Like brands are part of everybody's lives. Like we, we're exposed to 2,000, 3,000 different brand messages every single day. Um, you look around this room and there are logos everywhere. So they, they, they have a natural place in everybody's lives. Um, when you watch James Bond, there's a car. Everyone knows what the name of that car is. They don't have to tell you. Um, his watch, his clothes, everything is brand orientated. But when someone in that film suddenly goes, hmm, and an expensive watch, is that a Rolex? And James Bond goes, no, it's an Omega. It, it ruins everything. It's like when they have to point out what the brand is, you know that that's brand placement. You know that that's been paid for. And it, it's not authentic and it ruins the entire entertainment experience for people. They feel as if they're being uh, manipulated. And um, 
you know, if you're sitting in a cinema, the, the only thing you can do is walk out. But in social, you just immediately switch to another um, another piece of content. Is there a way, I mean, is and I feel like this is a rarity, is there a way to do that and walk that thin line of being very deliberate about your brand being in a conversation or in a piece of entertainment? Like, I remember years ago, there was the Ikea web series, which did really well. It was really well done. Or the first example I thought of for some reason was Taco Bell in that, um, like, not Judge Dredd, but what was the one with uh, Rocky and Wesley Snipes? Nobody? Um, See, I guess nobody saw the movie. The the audience will know. (laughs) Not you, the audience. My audience. This is going to get confusing. (laughs) This is going to get really confusing really quick. But it was like, it was this, you know, dystopian future. And like Taco Bell was the only restaurant that was, you know, part of this future. And those, but it was a fine dining establishment. (laughs) So, you know, there's, there's some tongue in cheek or maybe there's some methodologies of being, you know, an organic part of the entertainment and also, um, and, and still not distract, not being a distraction. I think so. I mean, there's there's movies. There's lots of futuristic music movies, especially um, um, ones with car brands. I'm sure Audi and Lexus have both done futuristic futuristic movies in the past, where a car brand designed the car of the future, and it was an integral part of the movie. Oh, I'm I'm going to have to interject. Thank you, Josh. Demolition Man. Brilliant. It's the name nice. of the movie. Continue. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, and and the the thing, I mean. One thing that I I would say is that, um, you know, that consumers consumers appreciate the fact that their entertainment has to be paid for. They just don't want the brand to get in the way of that entertainment. So, um, you 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 just have to do it in a way that, you know, we we do a lot of work with car brands, and a car is a vehicle. It, it's there to take people from a from place A to place B. It's not there to take center stage. So whenever we're doing content with a car brand, we we find. Um, ways to weave the car into the story in, an, in in kind of an authentic way that doesn't get in the way. The minute that it becomes an ad, people go, this isn't, I've, uh, you know, if they're watching it on YouTube, they've probably been exposed to a five-second pre-roll before. They've been watching that countdown, five, four, three, mm-hmm. two, one, quick skip. The last thing they want to see next is another car ad. So, um, yeah, and the, and the brands that do it best, the, the clues are all there for everyone to see. When you look at the, the world's most followed uh, and fanned brands, um, it's brands like Red Bull. You know, people don't think of Red Bull as a as a fizzy drink, a fizzy sports drink. They the, it evokes an emotional response in people, um, and uh, and you think of people jumping out of planes or, or spaceships or, or or jumping off cliffs on mo- motorbikes or, or mountain bikes, and um, it's the same with brands like Converse or um, Oreo cookies are massive in social, and it's that's a memory. It's all about nostalgia. It's everyone remembers milk and cookies. Um, I don't. They didn't have Oreo cookies back in the UK. Tea, so. Was it tea and crumpets? Tea and biscuits. Ah, yeah. Tea and biscuits. I don't even know what a crumpet is. I just uh, well, yeah. crumpets. Are, crumpets are, are several different things in the UK. So you've got to oh. be careful when you oh, use really? crumpets because you could use crumpets out of context and get in trouble. Oh, it, just it, a word of warning. It's the story of my life. Cultural tips. Using things out of context. <laughs> Trust me. Um, so no, and I, I think that's great, especially as to how you guys help to craft these experiences. Um, kind of just talk about the service set because I think you've got to do the soup to nuts, right? The social strategy, the content creation, the the you know patting the tears away <laughs> from, from from your clients. Like, what is the ecosystem of what the audience is capable of? So, so there's really three services. One thing is we go in there and we we consult. We we help brands work out how they navigate the social space. Um, and we provide them with something we call a playbook. You know, lots of consultants will go in there and they'll create a 2,000-page document, lots of charts and, and, and good advice, and it lands with a thunk, like a weighty tome that lands with a thunk on a table, and everyone's very impressed and they pay you lots of money. And they, you probably, they probably changed the front page too. Precisely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like different logo. <laughs> exactly. Precisely. And, then, and everyone looks at it and goes, wow, that's incredible. And then, and then it's used as a doorstop. No one knows quite what it means or how to use it. So very, very quickly, we realized that what's a lot more practical is a playbook that people can use to publish. Um, so, uh, and it has everything from, a, we, give, we give the audience a name and we tell them what they're into and what, what kind of subjects and passion points the, the brand should um, revolve conversations around. Um, the second thing is big social media campaigns. So we'll start the conversation for them. And we'll use um, influences in a lot of cases. Uh, social influences are um, a massive driving force in, in social. 
And so we'll use those influences in order to, they're kind of a baked in distribution channel. Uh, and the third thing we do is we 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 manage their pages for them in in a lot of respect in in a lot of cases. So we'll work with big brands to um, page manage on their behalf, and we've we've got a, a studio that of editors and designers and and video editors that will work day to day um, creating content and editorial calendars for them. I think with all those services and like that sort of depth of service around something that's perceived as like, Oh, it's just social media, right? Why is there such a big misperception on how to engage? Right. You mentioned like, Hey, come in with a soapbox and like blast your message is wrong. And I think we've all heard that story before. And you know, a lot of companies, organizations, individuals continue to do it. Um, why is, I don't know. Why is there this misperception of, this is how we're going to do it. And then it's in the back of our minds, we kind of know it's wrong. I think people still confuse social media with the internet. So the, the, they think of them as one of the same. And when the internet was created, it was nothing more than another mass communication channel. So it was a way for people to distribute information. And a lot of that information was, was information about their products and uh, information about their services. Social media gave the, the opportunity for people to distribute their, their own content and um, not just distribute content, but also express themselves and their personality and what, they, um, um, what, that, what was important in their lives. And that changed everything. It fundamentally changed the dynamics. And uh, I think a lot of people still think, oh, social, that's the Internet. That's a place where I take information and I distribute it. And it's very, very different. Um, social media is becoming a support system for people. It's becoming the the dominant way in which we express ourselves. That it kind of reminds me of the difference between a trade show and a cocktail party, right? Like the old internet, the web was the trade show. And if you're right. a company that goes into a cocktail party or a little dinner party and starts going, hey, look at my brochure and hey, I'm doing this and I'm doing that, <laughs> right. it's not too appreciated. <laughs> Absolutely. and And everybody is there to fulfill their own personal and emotional needs it's mm -hmm. it's there's social media is all about primal instincts so um you know twenty thousand years ago we were all living in very very small communities i think the maximum size of a community was about 150 people and over time and, and in a very very quick amount of time literally since the war people have um, people have all gone in their separate ways and now your family, your friends, your social groups are disparate. They're around the world. It's very di di difficult to keep in contact with them all. And, um, and also, after World War II, the youth were empowered to develop their own subcultures. So before World War II, your, your personality was kind of defined by your society. So if my father had been a butcher, the good there was a good chance that I'd become the butcher's son and then a butcher myself and I'd dress like a butcher and I'd talk like a butcher. And, um, and so it was, always, it was always really predetermined. Mm -hmm. But after the war, the, the youth became mods and rockers and hippies and punks and all these different subcultures. That's fragmented over time to a point where really we're in, a, in, we're in the era of um, postmodern schizophrenia. From one moment to the next, I can be very, very different people. I can wake up in the morning, go for a surf, then get on a motorbike. I can be a family man, a professional. I can go for a run in the evening. Every single one of those occupations has a different wardrobe, has a different lexicon, a different set of friends. Um, I act in a very different way in front of all of those different people. So trying to reconcile those personalities um, against each other is, is becoming increasingly difficult for people, especially seeing that they're not fixed. You can always change them. You can change your wardrobe. Um, you can change the way you act and look and your friends from one moment to the next. Social, is the, social media is the place where you can validate a lot of those choices, and that's what people are using it for. It's interesting. You know, I've always kind of thought about this idea of, like, acknowledgement is such a powerful tool in social media. Like, I, like one time I tweeted about Crest toothpaste, and they were, they, I entered this conversation with me. They responded, and I was like, oh, look, Crest is, like, I'm in it. Like, I felt so acknowledged. And that in itself is, I mean, I think it's one small part of the, the empowerment wheel, right? Making an audience feel good about themselves. And I think in some instances, you know, either you have to pick a persona online or you go like, I'm all of these things, um, uh, you know, and I don't know, like, how do you navigate between those two? I mean, from a social science perspective, you know, I am all these things, but on social media, either I have to pick a lane or, uh, or, I, or I just sound crazy. Well, I think you can be, 
uh, I think this is why Google Plus created circles. And it's unfortunate that experiment really hasn't taken hold. I think they identified that people have a number of different personalities. And so, so to re ring fence a lot of your friends and put them in these different groups, I'm not sure how many people do that on Facebook. The ability is there. But I think people just generally speak to everybody on their social platforms these days. But um, if you consider um, another thing that we, we often say is that um, remember when you were a teenager and you had, a post, you had posters on your bedroom wall and it would be posters of cars that you liked or um, films or bands that you, you, you liked and um, there was pictures of your family and your friends and places you wanted to go and your favorite sports team. Well, socials become the new bedroom wall. It's the place where you affiliate yourself with the things that have meaning in your life. Now, that, that can be brands just as much as it can be friends, families, um, sports teams. Um, if, a, if a brand has value, then there's no, no reason why you won't make that part of your cultural mosaic. Um, and a great example is Apple, who don't, they, they, there's no activity from Apple uh, in social at all. And uh, I think it's been taken down now. But for a couple of years, Facebook had a kind of a generic Wikipedia page on Facebook. So if anyone wanted to like Apple, they could. And uh, it's high, I think, 45 million people liked a generic Wikipedia page, knowing they get nothing back. There was no right. there was no return in that investment, but that was a brand that had so much value, intrinsic value for people that they believed that 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 it was it was a good thing just to like it and make it one of the things on their bedroom wall. Um, so there is there is absolutely a place for brands to play within this ecosystem. Um, they're an, they're an, an invaluable part of everybody's lives, but you have to understand the rules and you have to realize that it's it's not marketing. This is storytelling and publishing. I love the fact that you are well-versed in sort of this history of humanity and like how it really hasn't changed, right? <laughs> like the basic need of a social circle. I think you even broke it down to the numbers at one point when we were having a conversation. I think it's like somewhere around 150 or... It's, yeah, there's... I, 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 Again, I'm I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, there's a there's a there's a guy called Rob, Robin Dunbar, and he uh, he went around the world and chopped off monkeys' heads. I'd like to think that they were dead before he did it, but he he went around and he chopped off the heads of primates and and monkeys. Uh, he counted the amount of individuals in their social groups and then weighed the size of their brain in comparison to their bodies, and he came up with something called Dunbar's number, which is the um, the size of a social group based upon um, the, the, the size of a brain in comparison to the weight of the body. And um, if, you, if you look at a, a human being, that, that means that a human being's um, optimum, the, the, the optimum number of people in your social group is 150. So human beings struggle to have more than 150 close relationships. And of course, Mark Zuckerberg said, well, that's, that's ridiculous. There's people with thousands and thousands of friends on Facebook. So he spent some time there and he, he proved that you can be you can be con connected with thousands of people, but you only really have a, a close relationship um, with about 150 of them. And after that, society breaks down. Like, you can only be connected with 150. God, I used to reference Dunbar's number, and now I'm like, I want to protest now that I know that you dropped <laughs> off monkey heads. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> well, it's the reason he has a job now. Precisely. <laughs> Bless those monkeys. I actually have a monkey skull in my office. Oh, cool. It might have been one of Dunbar's. I'm not sure. I can't remember where I got I think it was probably from eBay. I doubt it was. <laughs> I feel really bad now. Um, but nothing much changes. Like, um, we like to think we're extremely sophisticated um, as, as, um, as a human race. But, um, you know, 20,000 years ago, this is where I upset all the creationists that listen to your listen to your podcast it's fine yeah um so it won't be a cool it won't a be lot. like picketing outside and we'll we'll be fine the numbers plummet but <laughs> the you know twenty thousand years ago everybody was lactose intolerant because there was no need to be able to process lactose after you weaned so that that enzyme um disappeared from our bodies after we weaned um, but then people started keeping um, cows and sheep and and goats um domestically and at some point, someone might have thought it was a good idea to drink some of the milk from them. And over time, the, the, the enzyme mutated, and uh, we kept that enzyme for a lot longer. And lactose persistence started to um, permeate societies. And today, I think something like 90, 95% of Americans and Europeans are lactose persistent until old age when the enzyme tends to de degenerate again. That, if you, if, if you believe in evolution, 
um, scientists say that's one of the the only existing examples of human beings evolving, and it's taken 20,000 years. Well, unfortunately, my iPhone um, is updated every every couple of years, and so technology is speeding up and society is speeding up much much faster than our bodies can 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 cope with. So I can adapt intellectually to modern society, but um, biologically, I'm still kind of a caveman wearing headphones. Um, that wouldn't matter so much if it wasn't for the fact that the, the area of the brain, the amygdala, where emotions um, come from, um, that's a primal part of the brain. And it hasn't really changed in all of those years. Um, the amygdala is the reason why um, when you go and see a sad movie, you tend to bite your lip and you, you start crying. You're not intellectually in control of those emotions. Um, Emotions aren't as, as uh, simple as happy and sad and angry. They're a complex cocktail of triggers that are always floating around in your head. The amygdala is also really important for making decisions. So scientists have studied people with um, um, amygdala damage. And one guy they put in a room and they gave him a red pencil and a blue pencil and they asked him to choose a pencil. And 15 minutes later they went in the room and the guy was still staring at the pencils, pencils because without being able to place any emotional value on those pencils, it was impossible for him to make a decision. So that makes life very, very interesting for a brand that is trying to get people to make choices in favor of themselves. It means you're at the mercy of people's emotions. And that, again, is why social media becomes so important because that's exactly what people are doing in social. They're using it, uh, as, as a, they're, they're using it as an emotional surrogate for the traditional um, networks that supported them 20,000 years ago. That's fascinating. Um, you know, I'm generally curious as to how and why you decided to go that deep. Is that a company thing? Is that just kind of your own personal curiosity about how we operate as human beings or a combination of the two? I think it's always been a driving force in uh, the audience. We've always been... Um, you know, a lot of what we did was instinctive. Most, in fact, almost everybody that works at the audience doesn't come from marketing. They come from publishing or from technology or from um, disparate backgrounds that, that, that meant that we, we managed to stay relatively um, cleansed of and, and, and pure compared to the advertising world. Um, and um, certainly the, the, the founder of the audience, Oliver Luckett, was... His background was in uh, molecular biology, so he was really interested in, you know, we started looking at what these networks look like. And if you start plotting them on a computer, social networks look like a brain. It's just nodes and bright sparks and, and connections between people. And whenever you drop a piece of content into this ecosystem, these, these connections light up, you know, and you change the pathways. And you, ch you change them forever. So, um, you know, this, this is... Social is, is chaotic and unpredictable, and you do something once, and it does very, very well. And then if you try and replicate that, then it doesn't do so well, because in, in the, the very do, you know, doing it in the first place has changed um, the network irrevo irrevocably, so you can't replicate those, um, um, those results, which is different from a lot of different marketing and media platforms where um, things are programmatic. So you set up something, you feed some money in the machine, you get a certain result, you go, oh, cool, that's excellent. All right, let's keep doing that and see how many times we can do it before we tweak it. Um, that doesn't work in social. You're, you're constantly at the mercy of people's emotional needs. I'm actually wondering, when you're working with these big brands, they say they want innovation, but at the bottom, you know, at the end of the day, they want to have the ROI measured and they want to know that you're doing the right thing. So this all sounds great, but then at the end of the day, they want that ROI. So how do you manage, what is it like to be in that situation? It's tricky because there's certain things that you can't, sentiment is still very difficult to measure. Um, we're in a better position than we were in the digital marketing age a few years ago where, um, and, and my background is in digital advertising. So, you know, I'd go and see a brand and I'd say, hey, we've got this really good idea for a video or a game or something, an experiential thing. And they'd say, right, well, you know, what kind of results am I going to get from that? And you'd say, um, we're hoping that a lot of people like it. So <laughs> if, they, if they spend, they might spend an inordinate amount of money on a TV commercial, but because they're putting lots of media behind it, they know that they're going to get a certain level of results. Um, with social, you can measure everything um, or almost everything. It's still very difficult to convert people. So um, people are entertained, people engage with a brand. Not many people will click and buy. It's still not the best platform for that unless you're, 
um, a celebrity selling a, a, a brand that's your own. Um, uh, but what you do have is influencers. So if you use influencers and you use their, their bit baked-in distribution, you can guarantee a certain amount of reach and, and be pretty sure of a certain level of engagement, which is very different and, and it's, it's reassuring for brands. Um, but it still, it still takes a, um, a marketing team and, and marketing executives very high up in an organization to take a chance on the bigger initiatives, some of the bigger things that we might do. Um, you know, when you're investing millions of dollars on YouTube de documentaries and, and investing millions of dollars in influencers, um, it's, it's, it's scary compared to investing it in TV commercials that, you know, no one ever got fired. Well, probably they did, but they, <laughs> less people got fired just spending all the money placing TV ads. What's the biggest risk that you took that you weren't even sure if it was going to work out? Um, I'm not sure... Um, I'm not sure we take many risks with a brand. I think we do lots of experiments that we have no idea how, how successful they'll be. Um, the, uh, uh, probably one of our greatest success stories is um, a project we did a couple of years ago with the Chainsmokers, who are now quite a, a popular and successful um, DJ duo. I think they've been at number one in the Billboard charts for the last couple of weeks. Um, when we first met them, um, they were unsigned, um, and they just... They just recorded a song called the selfie song or let me take let me take a selfie and um, at the time everyone was talking about selfies and it was kind of a the the meme at the top of the pile at right. that point so uh, once in a while we hold something called a whatever party which is a an exclusive event for influencers you need more than 50,000 followers you can bring a friend to the party free drink lots of entertainment lots of opportunities to capture content we um, own equal rights to any content that an influencer may create at that party. And um, so we invited the chain smokers along. We invited lots of influencers. We, we rented out a local club. And um, we got the chain smokers to do, this, do a set. And halfway through that set, they played the selfie song. And they said to everybody, everyone take a selfie. And uh, everyone did, at which point we probably had about 100 selfies that we used to create a music video. And that music video is now... I think it's been viewed about 450, 460 million times on YouTube. It's one of the top 40 most viewed music videos of all time. Um, and no one thought that we'd capture the imagination of, um, um, of people to that level. I mean, it became the anthem for the selfie generation. Um, and the, 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 the Chainsmokers have gone on to much bigger and greater things um, since then. Um, those are the kind of... Those are the kinds of risks we take, which are kind of risks with a small r, and we take a lot of them, and a lot of them don't. They, a lot of them fail, and, and a lot of them aren't as successful as that. But that's the only way to succeed, and we try and get brands to do the same. Um, yeah, I'll back up a little bit, even philosophically. Like, why do selfies work? Why did they become a thing? All of it, like you know, it was kind of like. We kind of did them, and then all of a sudden, like, I mean, there's think there's 300 million photos tagged on Instagram with selfie. What like, and it feels very self-serving to me, like just to me personally. I even have trouble like taking a selfie, a because I take about eight of them before I feel like I look good. Um, uh, and then That's B, I'm like, uh, do I really want to put like I just took a picture of myself? Like it's just it's weird, right? But why why does it work? Well, you're doing quite well because I think the average is 10 for every one you post. I lied. So, I lied. I think I was actually double. I'm I'm a pretty not so handsome guy. So you know. I would. I think you're doing yourself a disservice. <laughs> um, so so they're they're absolutely selfish. So they're a way of, um, it's 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 validation. Most people when they take a selfie, they they the reason it takes them so long to take the selfie that they're they're, they're trying to capture is because they're trying to encapsulate um, a single characteristic of their persona. So. Most, most people will be trying to capture a selfie that shows them as attractive or funny or adventurous or desirable, um, and that's when they'll post it. Now, everybody's done that thing in social where you find a really cool, it may not be a selfie, it could be an edgy piece of content, and you'll post it, um, and you'll wait for feedback. You'll think, well, people are going to like this. And, um, and half an hour goes by, and no one says anything. 
and an hour goes by and no one says anything and then you lose your nerve and then you pull that piece of content. That's because it, whenever you post a piece of contact, content, it's an act of bravery. It's like telling a joke. You do it for a response. And when, when you get that response, it's like getting a virtual hug. I think there's, a, um, there's, there's another psychologist, Virginia, Virginia Satir, who said that every adult needs eight hugs a day in order to remain emotionally secure. And, and kids need twice as many. They need 16 in order to emotionally grow. Well, as I said before, we all live very far apart these days. And in order to get those hugs, we have to um, share content with people. When anybody likes, comments, or shares that content, it's like a virtual hug. It reinforces your sense of belonging within your network. And so that's, that's why you're doing it, because you're deeply insecure, Chris. And you're looking for validation. <laughs> and you're looking for your... My, my lip starts to quiver. Yep, you're looking for validation um, that you're making the right cultural choices. Well, that also leads me to another uh, piece of content that you published. Um, is social media a mental illness? <laughs> is it? And, 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 or, you know, and or what's your perspective on that? What was that piece of content about? I think, um, so there's, you could quite easily, um, you, could, you could quite easily justify saying, yes, it is a mental illness. If you look at um, social media use, and there's lots of questionnaires that you can fill in if, you're, if you believe you're addicted to something. Normally, it's addicted to a substance. But if you remove the name of the substance and then replace it with social media, there are questions like, do I do this thing more than I know I should when I should be doing something else? Or can I go 30 minutes without doing this thing? Or do I know that it's damaging my relationships or damaging my quality of life because I should be out there enjoying myself instead I'm behind my phone? You can quite you can quite easily justify saying that, that we're addicted to social media. And we certainly have cell phone separation anxiety when we don't have our phone near, near ourselves. Um, there's people that are, um, you know, obsessed with um, their feeds and getting that validation. And, and I think I listed four or five different um, issues that people have from ADD to addiction to um, um, issues with their, their, um, um, their self-image. Um, a lot of surveys have proved that people in, that use social media a lot are more prone to mental illness than people that don't. I believe the reason for that is that no one's done a survey so far that says, well, maybe those, those people are, were already prone to it and they're actually going there for therapy. Everyone just presumed they were going there and getting damaged. I believe that we're all pretty damaged by modern society <laughs> and that this may actually be the cure rather than the, the sickness. So... Um, ultimately, I, I have to believe that my, my, all of this effort and my, my vocation isn't um, damaging society. I have to believe that there is, there is a positive impact to all of, the, all of this. And, and I actually ultimately believe that social media could have an Im, a, a positive impact that could save the world as we know it. So. Or the fact that you're aware that it could go either way, right? And I think when, when you know that this could be a very bad thing, you, you consciously try to make it a positive experience, right? And using all the things that you just mentioned for the past 40 minutes, right, is is like, okay, I'm going to be very careful in how I engage, you know, a 12-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 50, or whomever that individual is, and the cadence. And I, I, I guess my next question is sort of, you know, are we moving to more towards a heads-down society or a heads-up society, right? Because I think that in some instances, there's a dial back. You know, uh, David Ching was a guest on the show recently, and he made a great comment. He said he, he asked a room full of, I don't know, millennials, I'll, I'll say, um, how many of you have Instagram and Snapchat or whatever? And then they all raise their hand, and he's like, how many of you have yours set to private? And they all kept their hands up, right? So there's sort of like, like your 150 emotional being able to handle, but... You know, there is um, a healthy amount of anything. Um, so you know, where do you see the future going? Like, Are we going to go more social, less social, and get out and enjoy nature? I, I believe ultimately that it's a positive force in society. If you look at um, several different um, people have done experiments. Facebook um, did an experiment a couple of years ago where they uh, only posted positive or negative messaging on people's feeds and they wanted to see whether um, that had a positive or a negative impact on people now the reality was that if people saw more negative content they were more prone to post negative content 
um, if they saw more positive content, they were more prone to post positive content. However, the positive content always um, was was almost always received more favorably, and people posted more positive sentiment as a result. Um, positivity is um, everyone's looking for so. Whenever you post a piece of content, um, we, we always say to brands, look, we've got to find the shared value between you and that person. If we can find a shared, a shared value between your brand and a person, there's an affiliation that will happen. The person will affiliate yourself, the, themselves with the brand. However, if you can find a shared value that your brand shares with that person and then their network, they can use that as currency to connect with those people. Now, positive messaging is always going to engage more of my network than negative because negativity is normally opinionated it's trolling it some people are going to be turned off other people will think it's funny positivity is is going to be embraced by a, a greater amount of people so um, there was a couple of surveys that said that it was almost like a um, an epidemic of positivity if you could post enough positive sentiment right. then, then then it could actually have a massively positive impact in the world and when you look at the impact of digital, you know, when, when everybody went online and they could, they could search for a product and then they could, they could contrast and compare different products, irrespective of where they were in the world, whether they had to go to the high street or online to buy them, um, it, it, gave them it empowered them to a, a, huge, a huge level. And whenever they got that, that um, product, they could then rate it and they could um, comment on it. And then they could, they could make people's um the next person that bought that product would have a more informed view of that product um, and that had a, a radical impact on almost every single industry you know whether it's the way you book a taxi today or the way you book a movie or choose the restaurant you want to go to the record industry the publishing industry um, they've been um, completely revolutionized as a result of people being able to make those choices and um Social allows people to compare and com contrast values, the things that are important in their lives. Um, and, that and, and it doesn't matter what, what side you're on, what boundary you're, you're on the side of, whether you're in this country, that country, what religion. Um, it transcends all of that kind of cultural dogma and allows people to make a choice that's right for them. And um, paired with the fact that positivity flies further than negativity, I think that could actually be a hugely... Um, beneficial um, force in, in the world today. It's encouraging. Thank you. You made me yeah. feel a lot better. I'm not <laughs> crying anymore. Um, but I think, I think about, the, um, I don't know, when you talk about the, I think people can sometimes confuse their voice with action, right? And I'm, I'll use the current presidential election as, as an example. Um, you know, I think statistically, you know, everyone was like rooting for Bernie Sanders and then Bernie Sanders voters didn't turn up. Right. So and I think on social media, everybody has a voice and they say stuff, but they don't do anything. Right. Like they feel like, oh, I said what I had to say. And then they go on and yeah. eat their bowl of Cheerios or whatever they're doing. And they don't go to the poll to actually help make the change. They think they've done it on this platform. Um, can you speak on that sort of the, the division between those two things, like confusing, <laughs> you know, conversation with action? That's, I mean, I guess that's the dark side of, of um, social, the fact that everybody is um, extremely malleable and um, easy to influence. So there was, I think there was a study in about 2011 that came out of Leeds University where they put 200 people in a room and, and, and asked them to walk around the room randomly. But unbeknown to 195 of those people, five of them had been told to walk in a clockwise direction. And within five minutes, everybody in the room was walking in a clockwise direction. But the disturbing thing was that when the scientists talked to the 195 people, um, a lot of them, when they were asked, why did you walk in a clockwise direction? They said, well, everyone was just walking around randomly, and I thought it was a good idea to walk clockwise. So people <laughs> think that it's them that actually <laughs> right. came up with that idea when actually they've been influenced into um, to doing that. And again, everything. For me, I'm, I'm a very simple person and I, I chunk down everything to their most simple components. And people have always been tribal. It's an integral part of, our, of, of the way we're made up. And, um, and even to this day, people feel uncomfortable being the person in the room that is doing something different from everybody mm -hmm. else. So we all tend to follow the path of least resistance. So right. that makes people very easy to manipulate if there's someone with a very strong um, um, opinion 
that, that wants to lead someone in a certain direction. But maybe that's encouraging for people who want to make change because usually innovation is so hard to get adopted. But if you can actually get people to believe that they came up with the idea themselves, <laughs> then maybe, you know, it gets adopted more quickly. I think so. And everyone's always looking for the reason why innovation takes hold. Like, you, you know, people have been waiting for VR to become a mainstream force in, in, in the marketplace and it's taken its time and everyone was like, why is it taking so long? And I'm wondering why. And it was the technology. It was that we don't have enough content or people are just wait. They just still haven't adopted it. And there was, there was lots of, of ideas, but there there's, there's normally it's the tipping point thing, isn't it? It's that moment. And, um, you know, and generally it's it's the sex industry that has a lot to do with it again because it's instincts. Like I'm not shying away from these things. It's these these are these are emotional drivers and instincts that have driven people. Um, you know, when you look at cave art, um, there was three things that people used to draw on the side of caves. One of them was pictures of where they lived and who they lived with and what they ate and chased and who chased them. Um, very very simple. Very very similar to. Um, um, to a social page and then it was images creation mythology so it was pictures of where the sun comes from and where it goes and what pushes up the daisies and where do I go when I die and the third thing was a fascination with sex like it's always existed these have always been the drivers I think we like to think of ourselves as very intellectual um, individuals and um, very sophisticated but it all chunks down to the same old things yeah uh, you see that in music a lot. There was a there was a project done a couple of years ago with I think I want to say the Smithsonian and um, Rap Genius, the the website where you can look at lyrics. And they basically took the it might not be the Smithsonian, but they took a library of you know tens of thousands of historical art images and built an algorithm that as a song played. They would come up with these, like if Jay Z said, "What's a god to a king?" Like it would serve you up in you know an image that related to that line. So as you're listening to a song, they took maybe twelve artists and and did all these uh, different songs. And you're right, like these same themes of you know wealth, um, you know relationships, it, it, it just all the those same sort of three to five basic furthering the perception of yourself in society right, in, in exactly. your social network. It was. Yeah. You're always trying to peacock. You're always trying to, um, I mean, I, I'm not going to do it now because I won't be able to think of the joke, but, um, um, oh God, what's a, I think of a joke. Okay. How, what kind of cheese do you use to hide a horse? I don't know. Mascarpone. Oh, jeez. Mm. <laughs> she like, that, that snuck up on you. So, so yeah. there we go. So. That's that's a big risk for me. That I, sharing that piece of content was a big risk. There's a good chance that neither of you would laugh. I mean, you're kind of the, the laugh was belated, but I I still take that as a positive feedback. It was a domino effect. <laughs> was, it took I, a while to like it. Yeah, I'm but, the guy who walks clockwise after everybody else. Absolutely. So <laughs> so so the fact that you laughed it meant you liked that joke, and maybe you liked it so much or that I you're sharing. Nice. No. Or very, yeah, but that's kind of works in social as well, absolutely. I guess. But um, maybe you like it so much that you share it. And um, so content is exactly the same. You know, it's, a, it's a, an act of bravery when you share any kind of content. If you hadn't laughed, I would have gone down in your estimations. I would have looked like a, a, um, a slightly less funny person than you thought of me before. And everyone's trying to go up the ladder a little bit and be seen favorably by their either seen favorably or, or seen in the way that they wish to be perceived and validated. It, ruin, it ruins spontaneity in a, in a sense. Like, you know, I think I can be more spontaneous in a room than I can be with a social media post, right? It's just like, ooh, like, do I want to use this filter? Do I want to use, the, I took 10 images, not the selfie, but just maybe of a sunset or whatever. I'm like, ah, oh, which, like, you just kind of lose the spontaneity. But in this levels the playing field for inarticulate and antisocial people like myself. Um, you always had the upper hand. You guys that could go in there, smooth talking, knew what to say, always said the right thing at parties. Thank you. <laughs> I was the guy in the I was the guy in the kitchen. Now I can sit in the kitchen and I can take a hundred selfies and wait until I take the right one and then I can edit it until it's perfect. And so it gives it gives me it, it at least levels the playing field for the guys that aren't necessarily as socially adept as yourself, Chris. I think there's a big issue though, because definitely a lot of my colleagues are commenting on how millennials are having a hard time thinking on their feet and being in these situations in work where they need to just um, improv. And it's, it's a problem, actually. 
I think so because there's not as much practice anymore because yeah. you're not spending as much time socially face to face with people. People so, don't use phones. They're all yeah. you have the time to edit. So right. your life is 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 perfectly curated the way that you want it to be seen but then you get face to face with someone it's a bit of a disappointment you stutter <laughs> and you're kind of a bit yeah. kind of, you don't you haven't got photoshop so you can't correct the, the smooth or the lines so, then, so the, the idea you know the being spon- you know spontaneous the spontaneity as a skill i guess right. and, and then mm. it's, it's a, it's a thing um a couple more things before we wind down um you're pitching a talk at south by southwest uh social savages um what is a social savage so, so a social, social savage is exactly what we've talked about, which is um, the way that the behaviors that people are, um, um, you know, the, behavior, the, the behavior of people online is, is that of someone from 20,000 years ago. There's no difference. Um, we're, we're primitive when it comes to our behaviors. We just think we're a lot more sophisticated than we are. So it's an opportunity for me to kind of um, start, um, investigating some of that odd irrational behavior that everybody does online and then chunk it down and show how um, um, how people are using it as a survival system but also how brands integrate into that ecosystem because it's very, very complex and it's not the way that people have traditionally thought about social media. Uh, talking about you for a second, um, you mentioned the many faces of Patrick, right? Parent, motorcyclist, UK American tattoos. You refer to your shirt as a smart shirt. When, the last time we talked, um, but you also had on like you're like um, my cool man shirt. Um, you know, with all those different per- like I guess I'll say forward facing personas. Um, who have you discovered you are at the core? Because I think every even though we all have these you know varying ver- variations of ourselves we put out on social media, I think at the core we're like. I am X, like you said, you're introverted, or I might be like a, like I have so many insulting jokes in my head when I walk into a situation, but like, who are you, who have you managed to discover that you are at the core? I think it's, I think it's, um, for, I think I'm a storyteller for a start and you can't get a one word answer out of me, which I think we've, 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 we've shown in this, the best this, kind of this podcast, chat. guess. but there was, um, I spent probably about four or five years traveling around the world um, looking at cultures that had basically developed the art of tattooing. And I got obsessed with tattoo art just because I wanted to understand what was so important in someone's lives that they felt that they had to, um, um, they had to put it, mark their, their bodies permanently with whatever that affirmation was. Um, I wanted to know because at the time I had no tattoos myself, I couldn't work out what was important in my life to that level. So it was a personal journey as well as an exploration into a, um, the history of a culture. Um, and I met one, a guy one day called the scary guy, who's a, a fascinating man. Um, his, his name is actually the scary guy. He changed it by, um, by deed poll. And he's an American guy who, um, was driving he was I think he was a baby portrait photographer or a, a, um, a computer salesman and one day he was driving past a, a tattoo studio and he thought about his father and the fact that his father had a had an eagle on his shoulder and he decided at that moment he wanted to get an eagle and he went in there and got the eagle and then he went home and he looked at his shoulder and he decided next day he needed to get one on the other shoulder because it looked out of balance and he kept on going until his whole body was covered in tattoos from everything that wasn't exposed was covered and then one day he went to a, a staff barbecue and he took his top off and everyone saw him and they never treated him the same way again. Like suddenly he was this scary tattoo guy. And it played on his mind and he, uh, uh, he kept saying to his wife, I'm going to get a tattoo on my neck. And she said, the, the day you do that, they're going to fire you. Um, and, and this wasn't LA and it was about 20 years ago. So it was a world that didn't accept tattoos the, the same way that they're accepted today. Um, and he went out and he got the neck tattoo and within weeks they found a reason to, to, um, to get rid of him, at which point all he could do was become a, a, a tattoo artist and own a tattoo shop and cover his body, like his whole face, everything, pink handlebar moustache, pink, Mohe- uh, pink Mohican um, piercings, he's about six and a half foot tall, deep booming voice, covered in tattoos. Um, and then one day one of his competitors um, placed an ad in a newspaper and said, are you tired of getting bad tattoos from the scary guy around the corner? And again, he said, these people are just labeling me just because I look different from them right. and they've never met me. They don't know what I'm, lo- what I'm like. 
And a friend of his said, well, I, I'll tell you what you could do jokingly. They, he said, why don't you change your name to the scary guy just for fun? And he did it. And, um, and years later, he still travels around the world um, teaching kids in schools not to call other people names. And he wants to eradicate hatred and name calling around the world. Um, and he's a fascinating guy. I'm watching him work. It's amazing when he goes in these schools and talks to little four or five-year-old kids that don't place any, they don't see someone and judge them. But by the time they're teenagers, they've already got very self-aware and they're aware of, of heightening their position within sure. their societies. And so name-calling is a way of demeaning other people. And um, so I met him and he was chatting to me. He says, why haven't you got any tattoos? And I said, I don't know what defines me. And, uh, and he said, you, you got it wrong. He said, not one of these tattoos define me. It defined each tattoo defined me at that moment. And now when you look at my entire body, it tells the story of my life hmm. and it's still changing and it's still moving. So I guess my answer would be that I, I have absolutely no idea who I am, but every single day I'm learning more and and starting and, 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 and understanding more about myself and, and what's important to me. Hence, hence more tattoos these days. I know. The, what, are, what are these two? The, the two new additions. So the two new additions are the ones on my hands. One's, one's a tawny owl and one's, one's a rose. And they're for my kids. Oh, nice. Um, tawny owl, for those that don't understand British English. Tawny, I know. Tawny. Tawny. There's going to have to be a, a transcript for this, <laughs> this, this conversation. <laughs> exactly. What did he say? <laughs> um, as we wind down, what uh, you've, uh, you know, you just mentioned traveling the world. You've written about tattoos. You've, you know studied the history of humanity, um, but you've worked with brands in this modern technology society. Uh, what do you currently have an innovation crush on? What have you seen out there that you're like, oh my gosh, I mean, it might be food, it might be, you know, a car. I don't know what it is, but that's why I'm asking you. Um, I, I guess my big innovate, the, the, the area that I'm, when you say innovation, I think evolution. Again, chunking it down to its bare, it's mutations of certain things that give rise to a new thing that's different. And um, and so the area that I'm examining at the moment is the area that we talked about earlier, which is about the positive impact that social media could have in the world in the next five years. Um, new technology will play a part, new platforms will play a part, but ultimately I think there's something that's going to override and transcend that, which is which which is which has the the potential to have a massive positive impact on society so innovation i believe doesn't have to necessarily stop at technology it can involve um human psyche as well it's fantastic um last but not least you ready i'm ready <laughs> complete this phrase for me uh innovation to me is they kind of just answered it. I but. just, I said it. I mean, in, innovation to me is evolution. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd like to be a little bit more spontaneous, but I'd need to go away and open Photoshop and, um, and lots of other editing tools and then come back in two days. After, <laughs> exactly. after thinking about posting something and then pulling it about Postpone times. spontaneity. Precisely. <laughs> um, there's your next TED Talk. <laughs> um well where can people find more about the audience about you um you got a pretty good twitter handle going yeah there. the audience.com is where you can find out about the audience um i have a twitter handle i'm not sure what is up there um and it's at patrick mulford so it's there's a mugshot on there is that is that a real mugshot or is that a fictitious no, one i'm a storyteller i told you okay no well <laughs> That could, that, it was, could, that could be a great story. It was easier than doing it for real. <laughs> Although it did get me in trouble when I tried to get a green card. I tried to explain <laughs> that it wasn't a real one. Are you serious? Yeah. So my lawyer People said have it's no sense of humor. best if you got rid of the mugshot. Um, but yeah, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is where I'm active as well. That's why I scribble. I write things sometimes, and sometimes five or six people read it. They're pretty good. No, oh, I, you. I, I, seven. Yes. That's seven. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks ever so much. Just, my vote counts twice, though, so it's kind of like eight. Not just my mum. Although my mum is not going to be reading anything now that she knows I've got hand tattoos. So oh thanks, boy. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> you don't see her too often, do you? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> yeah, I've ruined your uh, maternal relationship. <laughs> I had until November, and now I've got until. Uh, couple of days and that's it why are you wearing those gloves um <laughs> z where can people find more um art of manufacturing yeah you can find us on on twitter at we make it in la you can also go to to make it in la.org slash art of mfg so, mfg yeah all right 
Well, thank you for stopping by. Thank you. And thank you for being an amazing co-host. Thank you. I feel validated. How about you guys? I feel good. Yeah. I good. feel good. You we'll such have a, a hug afterwards. Yes. 16 I, of them. Exactly. Yeah, I'm still I need, growing I'm emotionally. I'm a child. I need the 16. I yeah. think I'm like a week, a, a week over two. <laughs> <laughs> um, can one long hug just, like make up for the 16 mists? I feel validated when someone gives me a big bear hug. Yeah. There you go. All right. Yeah. And that, that's what we'll do after the show. Uh, everyone, thank you for listening. This has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time.